Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the podcast. As you can tell by my voice, I'm at the tail end of the flu that is going around. And so bear with me as I introduce this really important conversation. In this episode, I talk with Danny Mason Kinder. Danny grew up in the UK and at the age of 25 set off to travel the world. Her travels led her to Australia where she met her husband and settled into life in Queensland. Danny is a mother of two beautiful girls. Their youngest daughter, Billy, was killed in a tragic horse accident in 2016 at the age of 12. This heartbreaking time inspired Danny to establish the Fly High Billy charity. The Fly High Billy charity empowers schools, organizations, and communities to make a difference through acts of human kindness. A heads up that this is an adult conversation and we will discuss how grief can shape our lives, the importance of showing up for the people we love, the power of kindness, compassion, and empathy, and so much much more. I hope you enjoy my heartfelt conversation with Danny Mason Kinder. Danny, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. And I'm looking forward to this conversation because I think it's a conversation that everybody needs to hear, how we work through the challenges of life, how we find hope and how we allow hope to pull us forward. So I'd love to begin with asking you about where did it all begin for you? Well, I grew up in the UK to the most incredible family, mum, dad, two brothers, an amazing upbringing, beautiful childhood, great school, ended up working in the music business in London, which was very glitzy and and high rolling, and that was a lot of fun. But then age 25, there just seemed to be, there, there should be more. I wanted to travel the world, so I took off and literally traveled the world. Very lucky. Did all sorts of things. Ended up as a scuba diving instructor and skipper on boats. Finally settled in the Whitsundays where I met my husband. Traveled again a little bit more after that, New Zealand and then back. Finally, um, my best job of all and I had my two beautiful daughters. Oh, wow. I'm thinking about this adventure of at 25 thinking, oh, let's go off and see the world and seeing the world and then coming to Australia and ending up in the wet Sundays. Oh, that would have been a fun time. It, like I said, I, I think I was really blessed. I was very lucky and it was fun. It was just a lot of fun and I did lots of different things, learned photography, worked with whales and dolphins. I think I was really very lucky. I had a lot of opportunities um, open up to me. I took them, I guess. Yeah, I got to travel, got to see lots of different countries I think it was a really, it was an exciting time, but it was a really growing up time. I didn't have the first daughter, Charlie, till I was 34, and then I had Billy at 38. A long time in the middle there to do lots of things, and I think by the time I became a mother, I, I was ready to settle and stop and then and give my all to my motherhood. And when did you know that Australia was going to be your home? I think when I, I travelled around Australia, some friends in a combi van, uh, we did that for about, I think it was about nine months. And we drove through the Whitsundays through Early Beach. And it was there that I did a diving course. And I couldn't actually swim because obviously I come from England and not many people in England are great swimmers. I remember I had to swim 200 metres or something to get the certificate. And honestly, I only just made it, you know, I was a doggy paddling down the pool. But when I went diving, it was just easy. Fins on and under the water and it wasn't really like swimming. I absolutely loved it. And so within, it was a very short space of time. I can't remember how long I learned to swim reasonably well. And yeah, I became an instructor, went through the sort of 
rescue diver, dive master into instructor and then became an IDC instructor. So instructed instructors. Yeah, I just loved it. The underwater world was magical. And the best thing was no one could talk to you. That's why I liked it. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine what it's like to be under the water and really immersed in a different environment without the demands of daily life. And so it sounds like the water drew you to Australia. It really did. And, and early beach, it was just fun. You know, we partied. We, it was a really good time. And then, like I said, I met my husband there and, and just beautiful, just absolutely beautiful place. Yeah, so just life was spent on boats and underwater, really. Oh, that sounds like heaven to me. I'm an absolute water lover and I swim every Saturday morning and that just sounds divine. So what was it like raising two young girls in those early years? I think they were pretty lucky. <laughs> you know, their, their days considered that my husband, Dave, is also a skipper. So, you know, any given day when the kids were little, we would be on a boat over to Daydream Island or Hamilton Island and we'd get off and go in the playgrounds over there and then get the next ferry back again. And it was fun, beautiful and fun, free. They had a good education, lots and lots of friends, quite a small community. So I think it was a very tight-knit community up there. And, and even now, my, my very best friends are in the Sunday still. So. Oh, that is so beautiful. So tell me, where did the love of horses come from? I had a love of horses as a child, so I rode throughout my childhood, had my own pony, and then actually worked for a show jumper in London. And yeah, so I travelled around with him and sort of top show jumping horses. So I loved it, but then I guess when I left school, I then went into the music business and left the horse world. But then Charlie, uh, my eldest daughter, it was like she was born to be on a horse. And she, we, we went home to England, I think it was one Christmas, and my sister-in-law took Charlie on a horse trek with her children. And that was it. And then literally the girls grew up, you know, with those hobby horses, you know, the, the ones on the stick, the head on the stick. And that's all they used to do. They used to just run up and down our house, cantering on these hobby sticks. And they couldn't, they would never play with a doll. It was always a horse. They just grew up with their toy horses and their sticks. And eventually I said to my husband, well, maybe we should get Charlie a pony. And we did. And that was it. So she, she had a pony and loved it. And then Billy, bless her, pretty much grew up and was sitting on the horse before she could do anything else. So she looked up to her older sister, Charlie, and thought, oh, that looks like a good way to live. Yeah, absolutely. And they did. They just lived and breathed it. You know, they absolutely loved it. So yeah, they had their own ponies. And that's sort of how we left the Whit Sundays. Um, they did very well and won loads of state competitions in Cairns and down in Brisbane and Maryborough and everywhere in between. And Charlie sort of got wind of this international horse competition that was happening in Sydney. And she said, oh, can we go? Can we go? And we just thought, oh, well, why not? We always did pretty crazy things. And we thought, well, Dave took long service. We decided we would go for seven months and we would travel around Australia with the girls. So we put the two horses, the two dogs and the two kids in a truck. Uh, it was a gooseneck. And we left. We rented out our house for seven months and we drove south. And then when we finally got to Sydney, they just loved it. And they got in with the show jumping world down here. And to them, it was just heaven. They were just in that element. Yeah, it was then they all turned around. Um, they all ganged up on me, my husband and the two girls, and said, we don't want to go home. And I said, what do? <laughs> but they didn't. So we put them in school. So we homeschooled for a year, which was fantastic. Yeah, that was probably the best time of my life. It was just free. You know, we did what we needed to for the schooling. And then we're just always together. We had a saying, one in, all in. And the family of four was, we were just knitted, I think. Being in the horse world and competitions every weekend, we were always together and it was a lovely, it was a really lovely time. And then um, obviously they wanted to stay and I said, well, this isn't real. So you do need to go to school and back into the real world. And of course, then they went to school and loved the school because coming from the Whit Sundays, 
a smallish school to down here. They went to Arndale Anglican College and big school for them. Yeah, they loved it. And my husband got a job, he wanted to stay. And so that was it. We stayed. And that's how we got to be in Sydney. What an adventure. And I've got family that are involved in show jumping. And I know the commitment it takes to prepare horses and everything that goes with it. So it's just remarkable. It was a a beautiful life. I I don't think the girls would be who they are if it wasn't for that life and the animals that they were so close to. I I think there's the responsibility and commitment and the love. It's all bound up in us. Such a special time. Take us beyond that time. What happened next? We were actually living on a property where I was working and looked after the property and the owner's horses and everything. We couldn't really afford that world, which was kind of crazy. But so we worked in it and they allowed us to keep our horses and the girls, you know, went to school. It was great. You know, it was really good. And it was probably idyllic world that we were living in and having a lot of fun. And then the unimaginable happened. Billy had an accident with a horse and that was it. That was the end of the world as we knew it, really. Before Billy and after Billy is, is how I look at my life, really. And, and I got to almost 50 before Billy died and I was probably the luckiest, happiest person in the world. And then I figured I became the unhappiest person in the world. Yeah, you know, you never you never think it's going to happen to you. It's one of those sliding door moments. And even now, I, I, I still don't believe it. You, you wake up every morning and there's a split second before you open your eyes and you, you're almost back there in your life. And then it's not till your eyes open and the reality hits and you realize that, no, you're not there anymore, you're somewhere else. It's hard to explain because it's so bizarre. I can't believe it and I don't understand it. So it then makes it very hard for anybody else to understand. For sure. And I'm sure all the listeners are thinking of you and sorry for your loss. Also, those moments where we're just blindsided by life, like this wasn't on the plan. This wasn't on the plan. And like I said, you never think it's you. You hear about these things all the time. You just don't ever really comprehend that it's going to happen. And I wasn't a person that took life for granted. Every day I would say, how lucky am I? Look at my girls and husband and the life we lead. And I honestly would say, I look how lucky we are. I remember I used to really upset the girls because every day we'd walk and we'd walk up over the hill and you'd see the marina and, and the water. And I would go, wow, girls, you know, how beautiful. Look, look, look. And, you know, they'd be like, yes, mum, we see it every day. And I'm like, yes, I know, but look at it. I never took anything for granted. And sometimes I think had this happened, maybe that was a life lesson of, well, you got wrapped up in what, things that didn't mean anything, but I don't think I did. Yeah, it was almost like I felt I didn't, you know what I mean? I I, I got it. I I got how lucky I was and and how lucky we all were. But you don't think it's going to happen, but that's life. And, you know, that's what I'm learning. I went from the most idyllic 50 years to learning now. Most people's lives aren't like that. And everybody has a story. Everybody has something. I guess I didn't really get that. I didn't really understand people maybe that suffered anxiety or depression or, but now I do. I think I was quite an empathetic, compassionate person, but now I'm on a whole new level. I I think that's the difference. It just takes you to a whole new level of life. And a whole new depth of what can change. And I'm really curious to understand, what do you think grief has taught you? Stock up on tissues. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of tissues, bulk tissues. (laughs) I should have have shares in them. I don't know because it's ever-changing grief. You know, I lost my dad nine months ago. My dad was my best friend, my guru and my mentor and everything in between. And so losing him was, I think had Billy not died, it would have been so much deeper for me 
But what I've learned for grief, especially, there is an order of things. And I guess you grow up knowing that you're going to get old and you're going to die. It's an expectation that we have. We don't really think about it and we don't really get it, but it, it's there. And when parents die, you lose a bit of your past. But when your child dies, you lose your entire future. That's what grief taught me. I didn't realize how, well, I'd never grieved. And like I said, I, I had the perfect life. I mean, other than my grandparents who all died really in their 90s, I'd never had any sadness. And I know that sounds crazy, but I really hadn't. I, I was really lucky and I had no idea what grief was. And then all of a sudden, you have no control on anything. I liken grief to, I think it's love with nowhere to go. Got all this love and there's nowhere to put it. And I don't know, it's no control. You have no control over grief. You have no control on your emotions. It's just all so encompassing. I, I don't know if that's just a child's grief. You know, once you're losing a child, I don't know if it's so much deeper on so many other levels. Grief never ends. That's what grief taught me. I, I've learned that it doesn't go away. It never goes away. And people, they give you those sayings, time heals, or you'll move forward, or you'll move on, or you'll get over this, or you'll conquer this. You don't. You really don't. I think that's one thing I would love to say to people. Don't say that to a grieving person because they're in it. They're in that grief. They're sad beyond comprehension that their heart's breaking. You don't ever get over it. It doesn't go away. It does change. You learn to carry it. It doesn't stop. It doesn't finish. It doesn't go away. And some ways it actually gets worse over time. It gets worse for me over time. But what you learn to do is carry it with you because you still have to live. I have my other daughter, you know, and I promised the day Billy died that I would get up every day for Charlie, and I have. So you you have to carry it. And in order to have life as the rest of the world know it, you have to integrate yourself back into society and carry your grief. And I think that's the biggest learning curve for me is I'm learning that people can't deal with it. And as sad as we are, you know, my mum, bless her, I mean, she's my mum, and I can't imagine if this happened to Charlie how I would feel. And I think it breaks her heart to to see me the way I am. She's beautiful, but she'll change the subject or she'll try and make me feel better. And again, that's another thing. People, we don't want to be made to feel better. We just want to be heard. The biggest thing of grief is that people, I think after time, they think you, you look better. You're eating again, so you've put on weight again and laughing. I mean, you know, we make jokes and, and I do laugh in the moment and we do have fun nights and learn to live little bits, but it's always there. It's always there. And that is the hardest thing. And people don't want you to be sad. So either they don't talk about it or they'll say, oh, I didn't want to mention Billy's name because I thought I might upset you. And what they don't realize is no one can upset you more than you are already. There isn't one thing that someone said to me that could have, could make me sadder than I am about Billy. And I think if we could just ask people to just be and sit with us, because there are no words. There's nothing that anybody can say that could help me. And the only thing that could help me is if someone could bring Billy back. But what does help is just knowing that people are there, that they just sit with you. Even if they just sit on a chair and I remember I used to bring my brothers every day. They couldn't even hear what I said because I was sobbing so hard. But they just sat with me and they just sat for hours. Sometimes it was hours. You know, sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and the phone would still be connected to me and I'd be falling asleep. They just sat. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And so my one thing I would love to say to everybody is if you have a friend or a family that's grieving, don't try and make it better. Just sit. Because the one-liners, they don't work and they're not, they're not helpful. They just need to know that somebody's there. And let, and let them talk about them. I want to talk about Billy all the time. I do talk about Billy all the time. And it's the same way as everybody else wants to talk about their children. I talk about Charlie all the time. So 
So why would I not talk about bullying time, even though she's not here? I still want to talk. She's still my child. And I think that's another thing that people don't understand either. I know it's boring because there's all the same stories, which is really unfortunate because I don't have any new ones. It's such a strange culture that we live in. Other countries that celebrate their death, Mexico and parts of Asia and Africa, and you know, there's places that celebrate them. And yet here in our Western countries, for some reason, it's like a taboo thing. Nobody wants to talk about it. So I think that's a major thing that our society really needs to look at because it's the only thing that we're all sure about. We are all going to die and I don't know why we don't talk about it. Danny, you bring so many beautiful points to the surface and I know myself that I've sat down to write a card for someone who's experienced a tragedy or grief and you do sit there and think, what am I going to say? I'm not sure what to say, but then the power of showing up, being present and even saying, I don't know what to say and I love you, I'm here. Honestly, I mean, I'm here and I'm in this situation and, and on this journey, I've, I've made really good friends with other mums who lost their children and I don't know what to say. I mean, how stupid is that? I, I sit there with a card and I say, so often I'll just put, I have no words, but I'm here and I'm thinking of you because that's all you can say. That is so beautiful to remind everyone that being present can be so healing because I can imagine if people can't be present, that can be painful. Arrive and just be there in the mess and just be together. And, you know, that's the other thing. We, we've we lost so many friends on this journey. Like I said, they don't know what to say, find it very hard to be around that level of pain and grief, so they just don't. They just disappear. I think that was a very big shock to me. People that I thought would always be there weren't, but then you, you enter a new world of people that do get you and do understand and friends on, on another level. The same as you live on another level, you have friends on another level. And I think those friends are present. And that is, as you say, it's so important just to show up. And it means everything just to be there. And we all get so caught up in our lives and think of what's important or the, the money side of things or the materialistic side of things that we forget. We forget why are we here? You know, nobody dies on the deathbed and wish they bought that handbag. Why do we keep moving from what's really important. We all know what's important. It's love and our family and the people that are closest to us. And yet somehow we still manage to all get wrapped up in other stuff all the time. Sometimes I find myself doing that. It's, I just think we need to remind ourselves constantly that that is being in the moment and being present is, is everything. And having the courage to move through that discomfort and be present and acknowledge that we can't fix other people's grief. We can't change reality. What we can do is be present and be together. It is true. I mean, somebody I know said to uh, someone else I know, they said, I, I, I can't handle it. You know, it's, it's just so hard talking to Danny. And this person said, you, ha- you have to talk to her for 10 to 20 minutes. And that's hard. But Danny's got it all day long. And the family, we, we grieve. It doesn't go away for us. It doesn't stop. So yes, maybe that five-minute conversation with your friend is really hard. But you know what? That's part of growing. You know, that's that's us experiencing. Yeah, even if it's hard for a little while, they're not living with it. You know, we, we still have to live with it. And it's almost a sign of maturity to be with life as it is, knowing that things happen. People are blindsided. Parents pass away. Our children pass away. There's illness. There's so much that happens. And the more we can widen our perspective and our window of tolerance to be with life as it is. And I'd love to hear, who were some people that were really supportive during this time? Well, my family were fantastic. We were really lucky. We were really well supported. I don't think 
Dave and I and Charlie were left alone for over two years. We had somebody come to stay with us for two years. They were tag team. So I've got friends in the Sundays. I've got friends in Brisbane. I've got my family in England. And unbeknown to us at the time is they all talked to each other and they shifted. They, they had shifts. You know, I had a friend fly in from London for a month and then someone from Brisbane would come down for a week. And then we were really supported. We were very, very lucky. The community that we lived in, and we'd only been there for two years. I mean, the school was incredible. The school, I believe they bought a fridge for us at the school and parents just filled the fridge every day and they just bought us food. I don't know, somehow we ate for years. I don't think I cooked. But, yeah, we we were lucky, very. We were very supportive, mainly in that first part with community. But, again, you know, like I said to you, life goes on and I think that's why grief becomes harder. So Billy just turned 18 this year. All her friends obviously turning 18 and I don't hear from a lot of those mums, but it's hard. I guess everybody goes on because their lives are still happening, whereas we sit in six years ago. You know, we never move from six years ago. It's always Billy's 12, but obviously now she's 18. So you're always wondering, you spend your life wondering, I wonder what if, you know, what if this? Be studying at school or, you know, would she go to uni or would she still be friends with that person or this person? You know, it's very hard. So, yes, we were supportive, but that does dwindle over time. Court gets less and less and less. And like I said, I now have other friends that are going through what I go through and they're my support system. It's beautiful that you've connected with other people that have had a similar experience and maybe you can have conversations with them that you probably wouldn't have with other people. Absolutely. They get it. And we all grieve differently. There's one mum and, and myself and I'd say we're pretty much the same. And it's nice to know that yeah, sometimes when you think you're going a little mad or a little insane, there's somebody that gets you. And I think that's beautiful for all of us to remember that whatever we're going through, whatever life has thrown at us or is about to throw at us, that we are not alone, that there's someone else in this big wide world has experienced something that may feel different but also to know that there are other people and the importance of connecting with people if and when you're ready who've had similar experiences so you can feel that warmth of, ah, you get it. I don't have to explain myself to you. Because you get it. But on the other hand, wouldn't it be even nicer if we could maybe educate people in grief more than they are and to be present and sit sit with people? I think that Like you say, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's going to get thrown at us. And it's the aftermath of that, trying to keep, and and we are, you know, Dave, Charlie and myself, we're still very close-knit. We we still have a beautiful family, but it's hard keeping everything going sometimes. And if only we could educate people to realise that it doesn't, grief doesn't stop, it doesn't go. Everybody needs help in some ways. And it's not, it might not just be grief. Like you say, it might be children with sickness. You know, there's so much pain out there. I mean, world, we all just sit like, oh, God, that's terrible. But that's a fleeting thought process. You know, we're not really in it. But at least if we could do it in our own little world with our own friends and our own family, I think that would go a long way, just to be kind, to be present. And to really, really think about what it's like to be somebody else. You know, what is it like to be that person today, to stand in their shoes and go through what they're going through? And even if you can't comprehend it, just try instead of sort of walking around with the blinkers on, which I think we all are guilty of sometimes. And so when did the idea of the foundation come? When did that spark come into your mind? So what happened was when Billy, Billy was amazing. She had great empathy and great compassion and 
you know, we'd always say, God, you're an old soul. And, and I often used to say, I actually don't know where you came from, Billy, because I'm sure you got stopped at birth. And she was incredible. You know, I'd often stop and stare at her and I just think, where are you from? She just had so much empathy for people. And, you know, there was a story we were, we'd actually gone to buy a horse truck and we'd flown to Melbourne and on the drive back, we were coming back and we stopped at a restaurant for some dinner. And then she turned around and she said, mummy, she said, look at that lady. She said, she's all on her own. There's an elderly lady on the table next to us. And she said, that lady's all on her own, mum. She said, it must be very lonely to be by yourself. And, you know, for an 11 year old at that stage to get that. And I don't know, she just did. And she was always writing and painting and drawing and she wanted to write a book. She would always come to me and dad and say, you know, mom, dad, I really want to write a book. What should I write about? When she died, I was just so sad that she'd never written her book that she so desperately wanted. And so it became a bit of an obsession that I had to put together a book. And I remember my brother stayed out from England and my best friend came down from the wet Sundays and we sat around our kitchen table where I'm sitting now. And um, we literally gathered up her poems and her stories and we put together a book called Hope, which was after her last poem that she ended up writing called Hope. And the book is all her words, but it's also words and quotes that she had, but also words from other people about Billy. So it's a beautiful book. It's a hardback book. And it was supposed to be a legacy for the family. It was supposed to be a family keepsake. But then it started to sell. And we ended up selling over 8,000 copies. And what started to happen was people were coming to me, mainly parents, and saying, my goodness, you know, I I read this to my child and my daughters, we started talking about lots of different conversations that we wouldn't normally have. And Billy, I mean, she was an 11-year-old girl, so she wrote about dreams and family and hope and, you know, all those lovely things. But she was an old soul and she also wrote about racism and bullying and death. She covered a lot of topics that I think some parents probably wouldn't discuss with their children. The book was amazing. And what happened was I thought, gosh, if this book is starting these conversations with children and their parents, imagine if we made them into workbooks that we could actually put into school. So I started to do a little bit of research and and parents were saying to me, my daughter suffers anxiety or my son's depressed or, you know, my son's being bullied or my daughter started to self-harm. And I couldn't believe this and again you know like I said to you there was me in my lovely happy bubble with this beautiful happy life and I couldn't believe that other people's lives weren't idyllic like mine was you know I I found it really hard to believe that children were suffering depression and cutting themselves and doing these awful things and I just thought oh my goodness you know we really need to instead of band-aiding bullying and things that were happening why don't we start preventing them why is there anti-bullying websites and all these negative connotations about what's happening why do we not go to the source of the problem, an early intervention? So with the help of teachers and psychologists, we put together these beautiful workbooks, the Be Kind of Workbooks. They're now in primary schools. So they basically target um, grade one and two, three and four and five and six. And it's all positive language. It's all about empathy, kindness and compassion. And it's about building resilience and confidence and giving children a voice. And I, they're working. It's really quite remarkable. And I think because it's Billy and it's Billy's words, this is an, another 12-year-old child just like them. She's not a celebrity or an adult or anyone of note. She's a schoolgirl and her words are making a difference. And I go into the schools and there's so many children and they say to me, I'm going to be just like Billy. I'm going to make a difference. And it's so empowering. None of us realize the potential of being kind and what that can actually do and the difference that can make. So I was putting together the workbooks 
And anyway, I sat there and then I realized that Billy's name, B for Billy, and even though our name is Kinder, it's spelled kinder. Billy's name is actually Be Kinder. You could have knocked me down with a feather. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, there's me talking kindness and her name was Be Kinder. And so that's how the Be Kinder initiative started. So the Fly High Billy charity got set up. Sort of it's the Fly High Billy charity, but we're going to start trading as the Be Kinder Foundation now. Yeah, we have Be Kinder resources in schools and we have our annual Be Kinder Day, which is coming up shortly. My heart is just singing. I love the idea of proactively talking about really important topics, but also highlighting the importance of kindness, compassion, empathy. I remember once years ago when I was in a principal's office and we're talking about wellbeing programs and she looked at me and said, Meg, do we really need to teach this stuff? Do we actually have to teach it explicitly? And I said, absolutely, because if we value it, we need to teach it. We can't assume that people know these skills. We don't assume young people can read and write. So why do we assume that they understand kindness, that they understand that people experience different things? We need to teach it. And I love that your workbooks are bringing this to life in classrooms. Thank you, Meg. And and Dr. Kathy Harrison, she was a leading advisor to play school for a long time and she's worked through early years for the whole of her life. And so she had a lot of input into the workbooks and she said that you can teach empathy to a child as young as three. Some children are born empathetic, but some aren't. Not something that we all have abounding. I think it is a learned skill and I think we really should be teaching it. I mean, you'd like to think we're all kind. Nobody gets born mean, let's face it. Our culture and our society do that as well. I mean, you've only got to look now at the election and the way they speak about each other, parliament, the way they all shout at each other, the way they behave, the way they monkey see, monkey do. And if this is what our kids are seeing, this is what they're growing up with, that's what they become. We can't influence them without doing it ourselves. And so, yes, we need to teach it. We need to remind ourselves and be present, but we need to teach it. And imagine if these children throughout primary school, if all they hear is kindness, empathy, compassion, how they can help people, what they can do, surely by the time they get to high school, you would like to think a little bit of it would rub off somewhere. That's what I think. If we can prevent some of these mental health issues and bullying and those bigger issues later on in life, if we start, imagine what could do. You know, we really could make change. That's what we need to do. This is where our society is at. It needs really, really big change. And Billy once said, um, I know I'm only 12, mummy, but I know I can make a difference. And she's right. And she has and she does. And she's become my vehicle to drive change. I know that I can make a difference. Even now, if I have to be here without Billy, then I have to do something worthwhile. And we can all make a difference. All of us can make a difference, even just smiling at someone. I love that message that we can all make a difference. A simple smile, saying hello, taking a moment to think about I wonder what their story is. That was something that I was taught when I was younger, when you would see people struggling on the street or things happening, just to take a moment to think, oh, they've probably got an interesting story. I'm sure there's some heartbreak there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I've gone through this and I'm still guilty. And, you know, I'll sit in a car and I'm road rage and someone will cut me out and I'll be like on the horn. And then I think, oh, my goodness, you have no idea what his story might have been. He might have a sick child at home that he's rushing home to or you just don't know. And I have to remind myself all the time, everybody has their story and to be kind because you just never know what's going on in somebody else's world. When is Be Kind a day and how can we get involved? So Be Kind a day is June the 22nd, our annual day. 
it's not just about being kind. It's addressing what does it mean to be kind? What does it actually mean to be a kind person? The idea is that this is one day that we all do that. And it shouldn't be one day. It should be every day. But it is an annual day. Billy was always drawing and painting. So we've made beautiful greeting cards with all her paintings and drawings. And what we would encourage people to do is to connect with other people. Um, you know, long ago, we all sat there and wrote cards and postcards and all those things, and people don't do that anymore. And Charlie will say to me, Mum, people don't post cards anymore. I know that. And then I think, gosh, I know I'm old too. Why don't we take the time to buy the card, write the card, post the card? Every single time, every big kind of day, I get emails from people saying, oh my goodness, my daughter sent me a card and it's so beautiful. Or, you know, I have people my age going, wow, I wrote to my mum and she rang me crying. And you're like, we have no idea what this really does mean to people to actually know that you've been thought of and somebody's taken the time to do that. And again, it's that being present. You know, we can all flick a text. It takes five seconds and it means nothing. And we can all go on Facebook and see whose birthday it is today. It doesn't mean anything, but it does when we connect. So the idea of Be Kind today is purchase one of Billy's beautiful drawings, cards, and write a lovely kind message to somebody you care about. Or we also suggest pop a message, a kind message in somebody else's letterbox, a stranger's letterbox, you know, and wish them a nice day. And yeah, it's about paying it forward. It's about just being in the moment. So we have schools, businesses, and communities all getting involved. The schools um, are wonderful. We had 72 schools last year and over 200 businesses. So we really would like to increase that this year. We really want to get this as a huge movement every year. Yeah, and we, we would like to see another you know, 25,000 cards go out again this year um, and get posted around the world. I'm so excited. I'm really excited about this. And I love the idea of creating a ripple effect. If everybody has a card, takes that action, that creates that beautiful warmth to the next person. And then that might inspire somebody else to stop for a moment, forget about the demands of life just for five minutes and think about someone that you care deeply about and to take the time just to write and to send it. What a gift quite amazing and during the COVID we had a couple of schools they sent their cards to schools in the UK because obviously it was summer here and then they were in the depth of winter we did it called it the Be Kind of Sunshine initiative and it was in December and I was at the school here when the cards came back again and oh my goodness these kids were so excited you know it's like that whole old pen pal thing but why not why not actually write down and take the cards home and they keep them and yeah I think it's, it's very special you know and you can write things in a card that maybe you wouldn't put in a text or and even if you don't write anything you know you just draw a heart and send it just thinking of you is enough thinking of you is enough that is so so beautiful Danny how can people register do they need to go to a website what do they need to do really easy so just jump on the website which is flyhighbilly.org and that's billy i.e so flyhighbilly.org and if they head to the shop to be kind today, they can order their cards there. And 20 cards or more, they come with free Be Kind Today posters and Be Kind Today balloons. So we'd like you know, all the shops and even big corporates. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone decorated their offices and the local butcher and the baker and the post office and all the schools, if we all really got involved in this day. And, yeah, we're just kind to one another. And it's like you said before, a smile there was a little girl that wrote to me after Billy died in her school and she said, I didn't know Billy personally, but Billy smiled at me every morning on the way to school. And she will never forget that. It's such a beautiful thing. And I don't think we understand how we can influence somebody else's well-being or just tell somebody that you look lovely or you like the coat or I love that scarf. Where did you get it? Or, you know, your hair look, anything. It doesn't matter what it is. 
because that person will think about that all day long. Well, that person said my hair looked nice or it matters. It matters to all of us. So, yeah, we've just got to unwrap ourselves from everyday life sometimes and do the things that really do matter. Yes, and kindness certainly matters. To wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. I am inspired by... I'm inspired by Billy. I'm inspired by my other daughter, Charlie. I'm inspired by life. I think Billy has shown me, she's inspired me to do better, to be better, to be more, to be all those things. All I ever really wanted was to be a really good mum. She's certainly challenging me <laughs> in that department. Yeah, I want to do the best I can for my children. They inspire me. When life feels hard. When life is hard, I there's a quote at the end of one of Billy's poems. And it is actually the Hope poem. And her very last line in the poem is, but there is, oh, there is, there is a point if you make one. And when life gets all a bit too much for me, which it does quite often, I think of her words and I think there is a point if you make one. And I think that's something we can all do. Let's make, what is that point? You know, why are we here? Even if it's to hug your husband, there is a point. We just need to remind ourselves of that. An underrated skill is? I don't know. People look for a lot of things, but I, I think and passion. If somebody has passion and belief, I think that is that's probably my top skill. I'd rather I'd rather somebody come to work with me that was passionate about what they do rather than have the skills that they actually needed to do the job. And I am looking forward to. That's a really tough one because it's hard to look forward too much. And I don't mean that in a depressing, sad way. It, it's just you know, what would have been isn't. And husband just turned 60 and Charlie just turned 21. And, and all those things are fantastic. You know, they're all lovely and, and wonderful, but Billy's not here. So you do look forward to them, but you sort of don't. But what I really look forward to, and if it's really true and if it's a thing, then I look forward to my family all being together again. Danny, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story. It highlights how hope can pull us through. And also it highlights how remarkable our young people are if we take the time to listen Absolutely. and hear their stories and let them open the doors to incredible conversations. So thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing. No, thank you so much, Meg. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been lovely being here. I hope this conversation has inspired you to be a little kinder to yourself and others. It was such a privilege to sit down with Danny. It takes such courage to open up and share our stories so others can heal, grow, and learn from our experiences. To learn more about the annual Be Kinder Day, visit flyhighbilly.org. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. If you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends and colleagues. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 36. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.